Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. The Lafayette Escadrille As a young colonel in the First World War, upon receipt of a Silver Star for leading a daring raid that technically violated military orders, Douglas MacArthur quipped, Sometimes it's the order one disobeys that makes one famous. In August 1914, as decade-old diplomatic crises erupted into war on the European continent, a group of American citizens, in defiance of U.S. President Woodrow Wilson's declaration of neutrality, volunteered for French military service. Of those Americans who volunteered during neutrality, 38 uniquely distinguished themselves not as ambulance drivers or as foreign legionnaires, but as part of an all-American aero squadron flying for the French air service. Dubbed the Lafayette Escadrille, the formation of an all-American squadron in the French Air Service provided a foundation for a strategic alliance between the U.S. and the Allied powers, established a corps of experienced pilots for the U.S. Air Service upon its entry into the First World War, and developed a uniquely American flying culture and identity that continues to exist today. Now, four years prior to the outbreak of the First World War, in review of a French aerial demonstration, then-Brigadier General Ferdinand Foch exclaimed, Airplanes are good for sport, but for the Army, the airplane is of no use. The dismissal of air power by a future commander-in-chief of the Allied armies reflected the views of military strategists writ large at the dawn of the 20th century. As massive armies collided along the Western Front and ground to a halt in autumn 1914, however, airplanes became an increasingly important medium to conduct both offensive and reconnaissance operations. Air power's rapid development through the First World War altered not only how strategists viewed its utility, but more significantly, revolutionized how nations fought wars. In addition, the romanticism of war in the third dimension captured the world's imagination and offered an avenue of military service for young men who desired to circumvent the squalors of trench warfare to instead become legendary knights of the air. Yet, at the start of the war, few men were able to pilot such airplanes, and even fewer were needed to fly what machines then existed. By early 1915, when it became clear that the First World War was evolving into a war of attrition, staggering casualties sparked the Allied powers' call for an immediate increase in both men and materiel along the Western Front. The Allied powers hoped support from the United States would remedy resource shortfalls. The United States, however, fearful of dividing American citizens whose ancestral roots were drawn chiefly from the nations now at war, declared neutrality, prohibiting Americans from service in any belligerent military. To circumvent U.S. neutrality, American citizens enlisted in the French Foreign Legion, which required allegiance to the organization, but not to France herself. The Foreign Legion thus provided an avenue for American military service on the ground, but service in the air was not yet viable. Through the first four months of the war, American pilots were not permitted to volunteer in the French Air Service. Initially, the Air Service received more applications from French citizens than they had planes available. As aircraft production increased and the applicant pool declined due to Army manpower shortages, German agents infiltrating the French Air Service became the chief French concern, and with good reason. On two separate occasions, French officials uncovered German spies posing as American citizens while flying for the French Air Service. At that point in the war, the French solely used airplanes for intelligence, necessitating an increase in security measures to protect sensitive information. The path for Americans to serve in the French Air Service, therefore, appeared to be blocked. Nevertheless, Two influential Americans living in Paris, Dr. Edmund Grow and William Thaw, lobbied the French War Department to enable American volunteers to serve in the French Air Service. American pilots flying for France, Grow and Thaw argued, would capture significant media attention, shape American public opinion about the war, provide needed manpower to the French Air Service, and ultimately, 
produced tactical results of strategic value to the Allied cause. Norman Prince, an American pilot whose family owned an estate in France, paralleled Groenthal's efforts through his relationship with an official in the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The three Americans ultimately created the Franco-American Committee to formally lobby the, for the establishment of an all-American squadron. The committee invoked the memory of the Marquis de Lafayette, the French officer who volunteered his services to George Washington during the American Revolution, in an effort to illuminate the strategic importance of an all-American squadron. After months of meetings, hearings, and delays, the chief of the French Air Service, General Auguste Hershouet, consented to the creation of the L'Escadrille Américaine and ordered its activation by early 1916. Similar to the French Foreign Legion, the creation of the Escadrille Américaine made it possible for Americans to fly in support of France without jeopardizing their U.S. citizenship. The Escadrille Américaine's first hurdle as an active flying squadron was to fill its ranks with trained American pilots. While William Thal and Norman Prince were trained aviators, several other Americans serving in the Foreign Legion, upon hearing the request for American pilots, jumped at the opportunity to leave trench warfare behind, despite having never flown a plane. Bert Hall, the squadron's most polarizing personality, infamously claimed to have a private pilot's license and found himself subsequently transferred to a training airfield. Hall, quote, climbed into the machine that he was to try. Off he went, zigzagging like a drunken duck, actually left the ground, but crashed headlong into the wall of a hangar. Impressed by Hall's bravery rather than dismayed by his deceit, French officials, desperate for American pilots, decided to train Hall to fly. The French Air Service selected an additional eight Americans to become pilots to fill out the Escadrille Americans' ranks. Regardless of their prior experience, each of the members required intensive training because the French Air Service designated the Escadrille Americaine as an Escadrille de Chasse, or Pursuit Squadron, or what we know now today as a Fighter Squadron. French Pursuit Squadrons consisted of elite flight school graduates, and while reconnaissance squadrons then most greatly impacted the war, the public's infatuation rested not with flying cameras, but instead with the legendary Knights of the Air. While the world was infatuated with the development of manned flight, Military aviation did not receive its legendary status until early 1915. On April 1st, 1915, French pilot Roland Garros, after working seven months with French aircraft designer Raymond Saunier, took flight in a Marine bullet monoplane with a machine gun mounted behind the plane's propeller. Saunier developed a synchronizer, which delayed each machine gun burst so that bullets would not destroy the plane's propeller. This enabled Garros to shoot off rounds as he was aligned with an enemy's plane and relieved the tedious requirement of maneuvering a rear-seat observer or gunner into firing position. With this newly outfitted machine, Garros scored five aerial victories in 16 days against the unsuspecting German opponents. At the same time, the word ace was popular in Parnesian vernacular, and American newspapermen, upon hearing French journalists describe Garros' five victories earning him the distinction as an ace, created the journalistic standard for fighter pilots, which continues to exist this day. Garros' aerial dominance, however, was short-lived. German fighters downed his aircraft and transported the wreckage to Berlin for engineer Anthony Fokker to examine. Fokker perfected the French synchronizer machine gun design, and on May 23rd, the Germans successfully tested the new Fokker Eindecker fighter plane. For the rest of 1915, the Fokker Eindecker controlled the skies and continued to operate unchallenged until the French developed the Newport 11 in early 1916. The Newport 11 aircraft was the first French fighter plane to effectively employ French pilot Roland Garros' revolutionary invention. Consequently, 
the French Air Service outfitted the Escadrille American with the state-of-the-art Newport 11 fighter aircraft, further illustrating the French investment in the American squadron's strategic utility. Against this backdrop, on April 16, 1916, the Escadrille American arrived at Luxeuil-les-Bains airfield in southeast France to begin flying operational missions for the French Air Service. The squadron's mission at Luxeuil was to escort French and British bombers on raids into southeast Germany. Although in its nascent stages, airplaners began to think about the potential for offensive air power instead of operating solely in support of ground operations. In both the French and British Air Service, quote, the most important of all bearings of aircraft concerns the vulnerability of railways to attack from above, end quote. Through 1915, Allied bombing missions succeeded in striking targets on just three of 141 attempts. Allied airplaners crafted doctrinal changes following the failures of, in 1915, which relied upon pursuit squadrons to assist the slower bomber aircraft to their targets. The Escadrille American found itself at the forefront of employing Allied doctrine, a testament to the strategic utility the French Air Service placed on the American squadron, as well as the faith placed in the capabilities of the Newport 11 fighter. While the first few days of operational sorties proceeded quietly, Kiffin Rockwell encountered the Escadrille American's first German plane on May 18, 1916. Returning back to Luxeuil from a patrol mission, Rockwell spotted a German observation plane. Eager to earn the squadron's first victory, Rockwell sped towards the unassuming but well-armed biplane. Rockwell, rather than following the textbook rules of aerial engagement, approached the German plane head-on. The German machine gunner placed several rounds on the top of Rockwell's Newport, but Rockwell closed a point-blank range and, just as a collision appeared imminent, fired a quick burst and swerved away. Both the German observer and the pilot collapsed. The German plane rolled and plunged through the earth. The Newport 11 banked away, leaving a plume of smoke. When Rockwell reached the ground at Luxeuil, his wingmen were there to cheer him on and celebrate the momentous occasion. Ned Parsons, Rockwell's wingman, recalled that Rockwell broke out a bottle of rare bourbon to celebrate. Instead of sharing its contents with the squadron, the Escadrille American established a tradition that only a pilot who recently, quote, brings down a German is entitled to a good slug, end quote. Parsons remembered further that, quote, when the ceremony was started, no one had any idea that the bottle would outlive the Escadrille, but such was the startling success of that intrepid band that its contents were soon exhausted. It became known simply as the bottle of death, end quote. Rockwell's aerial victory marked an important milestone in the unity of the new squadron. It cemented the wingman's sacred bond through the sobering reality that while the air war did not possess the wretched qualities of trench warfare, each sortie remained a matter of life and death. During the next seven months, the Escadrille American experienced a baptism by fire that shaped not only their squadron culture, but also symbolized their strategic importance to the Allied war effort. Shortly following the initial success at Luxeuil, the Escadrille American embraced orders to support ground operations over one of the bloodiest battles in the First World War, Verdun. The meat grinder, as Verdun became known, signaled the first major struggle for air superiority over the battlefield. Air power theorists today define air superiority as having sufficient control of the air to make air attacks on the enemy without serious opposition, and, on the other hand, to be free from the danger of serious enemy air incursions. While the German Air Service initially achieved control of the air in February 1916, the French Air Service, through both superior weaponry and doctrine, regained air superiority in May 1916. The Escadrille American arrived in late May, 
to perform aerial sweeps over Verdun to maintain air superiority just as the Germans employed the ill-fated doctrine of aerial umbrella defense. From May through September, the American pilots proved themselves as equals to the French, accumulating more than 1,000 operational sorties, engaging in 146 aerial combats, and achieving 13 confirmed aerial victories at the loss of just one American pilot. Despite the successes and the gained experience, however, the air war began to take a physical and psychological toll on the Escadrille American. Over Verdun, the reality of the grisly nature of air warfare starkly contrasted with the public's popular perception of the famed Knights of the Air. Ned Parsons vividly captured the hardships pilots experienced during an aerial patrol, in which they would, quote, sit there for two hours immovable at 15,000 feet. The sub-zero temperatures penetrated the very marrow of your bones. Despite three or four pairs of gloves, fingers coiled around the stick and would be paralyzed in five minutes. Feet were twin lumps of ice, rigid and unfeeling. Shooting pains throughout the entire body, eyeballs and teeth smarting and burning, icy scalp contracting till it felt as if the skull must burst through and explode in a shower of bones. End quote. It became important, therefore, for squadron members to unwind when they were not scheduled to fly. As the air war over Verdun began to slow in September, the Escadrille American earned a week of leave in Paris as a reprieve from the intense fighting. Grounded on leave, the Escadrille American managed to score strategic victories in the City of Lights. In Paris, the American pilots met regularly with American newspaper correspondents, who wired stories across the Atlantic rich with details of the Escadrille American's aerial feats over Verdun. The pilots hoped the stories would help cultivate American public support for the Allied cause. Ironically, the press coverage instead spawned a diplomatic crisis for the Wilson administration. German ambassador to the United States, Johann Heinrich von Berstoff, became outraged upon learning about the Americans flying for France and claimed the squadron's existence violated the Hague Conventions. Relations between the United States and Germany in 1916 were already strained, and articles of an all-American squadron bombing German cities risk severing diplomatic ties entirely. The Wilson administration chose not to publicly condemn the American pilots given their widespread popularity. Rather, Secretary of State Robert Lansing requested that the French War Ministry change the official name of the squadron. The French War Ministry quickly complied with Lansing's request and ordered the French Air Service to refer to the American squadron henceforth as the Lafayette Escadrille, satisfying the Wilson administration. The incident illustrates the unique strategic effect the Lafayette Escadrille a tactical flying squadron produced not only in the press, but also across the highest levels of government. While diplomats negotiated the subtle moniker attached to the Lafayette Escadrille, the American pilots' experience in Paris firmly solidified the squadron's cultural identity. Georges Thanol, the squadron commander, commented, There can be nothing more restful for men at war than to get back to contact with the civilization. No more butchery, no more horrors. Instead, the Lafayette Escadrille enjoyed the finest wines and whiskeys the city had to offer. On one particular whiskey-inspired evening, the young Americans sought out a Parisian doctor who was reportedly selling a lion cub. Together, the pilots located the seller, found the reporting to be accurate, and pulled together 500 francs to buy the lion cub, which they instantly named Whiskey. The Parisian asked if the pilots needed a cage for the new mascot, to which James McConnell replied, why put him behind bars? He'll see all the bars he needs traveling with this mob. 
Whiskey served as the squadron's mascot and accompanied the Lafayette Escadrille for the duration of the war, making the already popular Americans even more beloved. True to their personality, one lion did not suffice. The pilot sought a companion for Whiskey and figured, quote, it was only proper that he should have a wife. So, after a diligent search, we found a little female who, quite naturally, was promptly named Soda, end quote. While the comical absurdity of the situation provides insight into the individual personalities of the American pilots, it also offers a deeper understanding of the squadron's character. The Lafayette Escadrille symbolized American commitment to the war. Eager to prove its status as an elite squadron, the Lafayette Escadrille, with lions in tow, quite literally served France ferociously, in the air as well as on the ground. Further solidifying its unique identity, the Lafayette Escadrille also designed a distinctive squadron patch, resembling a Sioux Indian, that soon found itself painted on each plane. If their accents did not distinguish the pilots enough, two lion cubs and an unmistakable Sioux Indian plainly characterized the Lafayette Escadrille as wholly American. While leave provided a well-earned respite from the war, the Lafayette Escadrille faced a grim reality upon return to operational duty. The German Air Service, refining its doctrine from Verdun, returned to employing offensive operations. The French Army, in response to the increased German air raids, demanded the French Air Service to conduct defensive patrols to further deter German attacks. The two air services virtually traded air doctrines, and consequently, the Germans regained the aerial advantage. The doctrinal change brought fatal results to the Lafayette Escadrille. Within three weeks, Kiffin Rockwell and Norman Prince, two of the squadron's elite pilots, lost dogfights while flying defensive patrols. The subsequent outpour of support from the French Air Service indeed signified the political importance of the squadron, as both funerals were so large that Georges Fanot commented that they were worthy of a general. Yet, French military brass at the funerals of their fallen comrades did little to calm the nerves of the Lafayette Escadrille. Members of the squadron became distressed at the realization that they were not, in fact, invincible. Squalid conditions along the Somme, where the squadron was next stationed, worsened morale. The winter months grounded air operations in France, as fog and rain soaked the Western Front and furthered the Lafayette Escadrille's string of misfortunes. It was not until April 1917 that the weather improved enough for the squadron to sustain flight operations. Erroneously, French air doctrine did not improve with the change in weather. The spring of 1917 not only brought poor weather to the Western Front, but also disturbing reports from Moscow. Tsarist Russia collapsed in revolution, forcing the already strained Russian military into complete disarray. The Russian Revolution thus enabled Germany to shift nearly its entire weight of effort to the Western Front. French General Robert Nivelle convinced that the Allies needed to strike a decisive blow before Germany transferred its soldiers from the Eastern Front, devised an ill-fated strategic offensive against the recently constructed Hindenburg Line. The Lafayette Escadrille flew in support of the Second Battle of Aisne, operating out of Ham Airfield in central France. Much like the Allied ground forces, who sustained over 187,000 casualties in just three short weeks of fighting, the Lafayette Escadrille sustained considerable losses in the air. Advancements in German tactics initially deterred the Allied aerial assaults. The Lafayette Escadrille encountered the new tactics head-on, in the form of the famed flying circus over the Hindenburg Line in which the seven or more German fighters, quote, would fly in a circle of great circumference. The German dived toward the interior of the circle and broke the combat by a sudden maneuver while his assailant was attacked in turn, in an unfavorable position by another enemy next in the order of the circle, end quote. 
In just a month of fighting, the Germans scored four aerial victories against the Lafayette Escadrille, taking the lives of four American pilots. Despite heavy losses, the experience gained by the Lafayette Escadrille in flying against the exceptional Germans would prove indispensable for the members that eventually formed the core of the fledgling United States Air Service. In addition, while the arrival of the new French SPAD fighter helped the Lafayette Escadrille stem the tide of the air battle, General Nivelle's larger offensive ended in catastrophe, bringing French units to the brink of mutiny. In the midst of a series of Allied setbacks, the United States officially declared war on Germany on April 6, 1917. For the Lafayette Escadrille, the moment brought both pride and bitterness. Pride in the fact that their fellow citizens would provide a much-needed boon to the Allied cause, and bitterness in that they felt the United States had waited far too long to join the fray. The moment also brought a reprieve from, the dw from dwelling on the recent series of calamities. At once, the French Air Service sought to procure American uniforms for the Lafayette Escadrille to demonstrate, quote, the importance of the American flag being engaged in the conflict without delay. The French War Ministry also attempted to immediately transfer the Lafayette Escadrille to the United States Air Service, but the USAS lacked a command structure to absorb the American pilots. U.S. General John Pershing, upon inspecting the USAS, commented bluntly that the situation at the time as to aviation was such that every American ought to feel mortified to hear it mentioned. Consequently, facilitating the bureaucratic transfer of the Lafayette Escadrille to the USAS was a secondary priority for the United States. The Lafayette Escadrille continued to distinguish itself in service for France through 1917, helping the Allies maintain air superiority over the Western Front. When the USAS finally established itself in France in late 1917, the service offered commission to each of the members of the Lafayette Escadrille into the U.S. Army as captains in recognition of the pilots' valuable flying experience and sacrifices. The pilots of the Lafayette Escadrille formed the bulk of the newly created 103rd Pursuit Squadron and served as a foundation of the USAS. Underscoring the Lafayette Escadrille's influence on the United States Air Service, the 103rd Pursuit Squadron officially adopted the distinctive Sioux Indian logo as its official squadron patch. While the Lafayette Escadrille ceased to exist in name, it formed the backbone of the United States Air Service as green American pilots arrived along the Western Front. In the fall of 1918, the famed American 42nd Rainbow Division, an infantry unit composed of National Guardsmen from across the United States, engaged in the final Allied thrust in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive to eject German forces from France once and for all. During the push in early October, the Rainbow Division's decorated Chief of Staff, Brigadier General Douglas MacArthur, vividly recalled observing an aerial spectacle. Quote, Without warning, a squadron of German planes dived out of nowhere and shot down every one of the dozen or more observation balloons the Army had in the air. In leaving, they flew not a hundred feet above me, and I recognized the flowing yellow scarves of the Richthofen squadron, the famous flying circus, end quote. By late 1918, however, offensive German air operations were the exception, not the rule. The German air service found itself increasingly overwhelmed by Allied numerical superiority, due in part to the influx of American pilots and materiel. Just as the Marquis de Lafayette fought with the American revolutionaries prior to the formal commitment of the French military to the War of Independence, so too did the Lafayette Escadrille service to the French war effort serve as a precursor to the entry of the American military might to decisively turn the tide of the war in favor of the Allies. Georges Fenon best summarized the Americans' impact, proclaiming, quote, They were the precursors of that mighty awakening of the West, 
of that gigantic effort of America, unparalleled in history, the greatest of all crusades, where every qualified fighting man was enrolled under the stars and stripes for no selfish aim, for no world conquest, but for the great ideals upon which civilization depends." End quote. As Germans faded under assault from MacArthur's 42nd Rainbow Division, former members of the Lafayette Escadrille cleared the skies of German aircraft to gain air superiority over the battlefield and enable the American ground forces freedom of movement onward to victory at the end of 1918. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.